Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest uh, is Sterling Snow, the Senior Vice President of Revenue at DV. Sterling, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we we were uh, we are quite active on LinkedIn, the both of us. And uh, I saw one of your comments about uh, that you at DV are serving the middle American companies uh, and not only serving other scale-ups. And I thought that that point very interesting. And, and another point on, on your experience that I will point out later on our on our conversation. But first of all, uh, let's give the opportunity to the community to get to know more uh, about yourself. So who is Sterling and uh, let us know also about about TV. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I, I'm pretty boring. I think you'd say I started uh, I started a marketing agency when I was 15, 16 years old, got into um, helping really, it was middle America businesses back then too. We were helping, uh, medical practices, restaurants, people who didn't understand how to create and generate demand and drive, drive funnels. And so I got into that at a young age. And then when I came, uh, came out to Utah for college, um, I got, I got introduced to a company called Jive. And Jive was a, a venture-backed, hyper-growth startup in the unified communications space. And I just fell in love, right? For, for people who want to play in the NBA, in tech, the major leagues, mm -hmm. you know, venture-backed startups is where you want to go. And so I, I got a little, I got a taste of that at Jive, and we grew tremendously well. And we're able to exit via acquisition to a company called LogMeIn out of Boston, and, uh, and then I just wanted to do it again. So I, I was looking for, I wanted to take a big swing and I was looking for the biggest bat that I could find. And uh, I met up with the Divi founders and this was pre any institutional funding. And it was very clear to me even then that Divi was the biggest bat for anybody who wanted to take a big swing. And so I, I came on board. Um, I started as a, a VP of marketing but for many years, I've had some, some pretty strong thoughts on how you should structure a hyper growth revenue function. And so as I started the VP of marketing, we started at the top of the funnel, but we worked all the way down, um, building out sales, customer success, customer support, revenue operations. And that's, that's the job that I have today is to work with all those teams and own that funnel entirely. And it's a dream. It's the best job anybody could ever have. At the best company anybody could ever work so it's uh that, that's, that's a little bit about me that's great it sounds an amazing experience and and your second one right so uh, first got acquired by log me in or uh, exits to log me in and and what i what i also love about your experience is that you have been with the company from seed or you were even saying uh, maybe before until the Series C, 200 million Series C round um, last year from amazing investors. So, can can we can you just walk us through uh, what is DV and uh, where are you in terms of stage of growth? Yeah. So the the easiest way to understand Divi is we started out as a corporate card credit card that businesses could use. And then we built software on the back of it to automate things like expense reports. 
and month-end reconciliation and accounts payable processes. And so you, you come in and you replace your American Express or your Chase Bank program with Divi, but then you also get the benefit of being able to replace Expensify or Concur or whatever software you're using. And that's really where we started. That was the original idea um, that the founders here at Divi had. So Blake and Alex, they basically invented the idea of the expense card. And, you know, it's, it's since been popularized and there's now several players who do it, but that was Divi's original idea and original hook. Um, but then it opens gates for you to do other things like create a, a true financial operating system with bill pay functionality, with accounting functionality and, and different things like that. Um, so, yeah, I showed up when it was, you know, very early stages, you know, some developers, the founders, a couple of interns on, on the marketing side. And we, we grew tremendously, obviously, from that small team. We got some incredible investors along the way, like Paleon, Insight, NEA, um, and it's just, it's been, it's been a real rocket ship. Um, you know, the, the kind of thing that you, you dream about when you get into the startup space. It's pretty impressive. And in terms of the size of the team at this, at this stage, uh, so how big is the team? Yeah. So I think to date we're around the, the 325, 350 FTE mark. And on your function? And specifically within the revenue function, so marketing, sales, customer success, customer support, revenue operations, I think it's around 160, something like that. Wow, so almost half uh, of, of the company. Yeah. It's beyond a, your responsibility. <laughs> yeah, but luckily, luckily the leaders that we have, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit Absolutely. later, but the leaders we have are phenomenal. You, you, can't, you can't do it with, uh, without phenomenal leaders. So Starling, let, let's go into, into that because I'm sure that the, our audience and our community is, is super curious to, to learn some of those amazing insights on, on your experience. Um, we always discuss on the show three critical ingredients to scale. So number one, radical focus. Number two, world-class leadership slash team slash culture. I keep adding new layers to this one. And number three, uh, culture uh, of execution. So starting with number one, and I, I really want to go quickly to, into, the, um, into the revenue machine and the revenue engine and the revenue structure. But first, there is always this counterintuitive, counterintuitive discussion that I have with, with founders and leaders who are scaling up that we need to have the courage to double down on what works instead of trying to fix what is not working and also being detached about what we'd like to be and uh, in, instead of following what the market, what the customer is telling us that is the future and what are the main pains and problems that they have to solve. So. Um, do you have any insights on that? And did you feel yourself this kind of pain? And <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, when you when you experience growth like like these companies in your audience has, you will deal with focus problems. Um, Divi is no different, but I, I want to add like my unique lens on that is truly exceptional organizations have to be able to explore at the same time as they exploit. So when you talk about focus, you're talking about exploiting. 
and you're saying, okay, what is working that we need to work better, that we need to double down on, but you can never lose that ability to explore. explore. Now, the tricky part is getting that balance right and making sure you're not overdoing one or the other, because if you fail to explore, you will eventually be disrupted, right? Like it is just a matter of time. If you fail to exploit, you will end up not not having world-class experiences at the, that thing that you found product market fit with. And so, yeah, that's absolutely a constant conversation that we have at Divi. Um, and I think that you have to really, you have to really hone in on your prioritization and, and listen to what the market is telling you. You cannot get theoretical. That's the biggest mistake I find people making is you start thinking about your roadmap in terms of theory and like, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if X instead of listening to feedback, doing exploratory discovery calls and really listening to what, what the market is telling you in mixing that with your own vision and your own ability to understand where the market is going. So yeah, those are, those are a few of my thoughts on focus. It's a really hard exercise. Um, the, uh, the best thing I've found to help with focus is on a, on a monthly or a quarterly cadence, depending on how fast you move in your one-on-ones with your leadership team, mm -hmm. basically have what I call a barnacle scraping exercise. You basically throw everything that's on that's on your mind on a board and you basically put it into three buckets. You delegate, you delete, or you do. And you you have to you have to be ruthless because you cannot do everything on that list. It's too big. You have to delegate some of it and you have to delete some of it or or at least kick it down the road a little bit. And so doing that on a regular basis helps people feel more focused feel like they're aligned with the, the leadership vision for the team. And that's a very helpful exercise I've found to, uh, to fight the, uh, the focus bug as much as you can. Love it. And love the way you pointed out with the explore and exploit uh, discussion. And I think that's, that's part of the complexity uh, after, um, especially after Series A, where we need to start working already on the engine that will allow us to go from 5 million error to 10 million error. And when we are getting to five, we need to already be working on how we will get from 10 to 20 million error. If not, it's, it's too late. So which means that we need to be on the short, on the mid, and on the long term. And usually we forget the midterm. So sometimes we have that North Star, that big dream alive in the organization and we still repeat it. We know what we need to do in the quarter, but we don't have a clue about what will happen in the next uh, 18 months or 24 months or 36 months. And uh, it seems also that if we get to the next milestone and we get the next round, things will become easier. Uh, but it's it's the growth paradox, right? It's It becomes even more difficult to keep doubling or tripling the revenue uh, of the company um, every every single year. Yeah. I, I don't think it ever gets easier. The problems <laughs> just change, right? And, and that's why for leaders, it's incredibly important to be very uh, self-aware as far as what your strengths and your weaknesses are and to make sure that as you build structures and teams as you grow, that you're accounting for all those things because it never gets easier. The problems just change and you will need consistently better 
experts and leaders to help you with, with the problems. You know, when you look at an A, B, C, you know, beyond and you go a public company, right? right. Um, those are all just different problems, but they never get easier. And there is something interesting that we start discussing on the show, which is why we say now from 1 million to 1 trillion, we are still talking about revenues. Uh, is as you said, is when you get to the 100 million, which is kind of the goal of venture backed business, getting from zero to 100 million, five to seven, seven to 10 years, uh, and you go public, you still need to go to 1B. And from 1B, you become a corporate and you need to skip uh, walking to the kind of the 260B plus of Amazon. So, so it is always possible to do better and, and, to, and to keep scaling and to have a, a larger impact, which, which is a, a, an amazing experience. So you're talking about uh, the importance and let's, let's move into the second uh, ingredient uh, of assuring that you have the right people on the right seats and having a team that complements you and adapted to the, to, the, to the right stage of growth. You also have uh, something peculiar about your career that Dave Gerard likes to, to also post. Uh, Dave Gerard is, is the former VP of marketing at, uh, at Thrift for the ones who don't know. Uh, and there's some interesting uh, LinkedIn posts uh, that he was telling why the hell the VPs of revenue or the CROs are coming from a sales background and not from a marketing background. Uh, and in your case, we have someone here on the show, Sterling, that yeah. comes uh, from a VP marketing position and uh, becomes uh, accountable for, for revenue. So how did it happen and how did you build a team? It's a really good question. And I think honestly, for me, it started, it started when I was running a marketing agency and I, I was, the product was marketing, but my day job was the sales and the growth of that business. <laughs> and so I started to, I started to like eat my own dog food in that I was, I was marketing and I was sales and I was running those functions. And then as we went to Jive, um, you know, which was a, a much bigger company and growing much faster, those same things just kept cropping up. I need to, I need there to be basically no difference between the marketing and sales teams in terms of how we report, what our goals are, our alignment and our partnership has to be absolute for us to, to move quickly. And you realize that other organizations they spend half their time trying to figure out if the chief sales officer is using the right data or if the chief marketing officer is. And they spend half their time, right. um, you know, talking shit about each other so that they don't look bad. And you lose so much productivity and your funnel is it, it's filled with friction. Right. And so the idea that uh, that you need to align and, and create a frictionless funnel, I think is a no brainer. And then the second part of that is, I think you're gonna see a lot of those people come from marketing because A, you, del you, you have the ability to be highly analytical and it becomes a numbers game. Like the faster you grow, the more you need to have that, that nuanced analytical experience to guide the funnel. And then two, um, I think that, I think you're just seeing that a lot of really talented people in SaaS have gravitated towards owning the top of the funnel so that they can be the engine that really drives things, but then they want to own more and more of that to have control over the entire experience and not just not just their their part at the top of the funnel. So yeah, I think that's a trend that's going to continue. A, I think that revenue functions are going to encompass the entire customer journey from marketing to support. 
And I think you're going to see a lot of really talented marketers step up into that CRO role. Love it. And this is something very, very interesting. So I think that when we start the companies, kind of the founders and a bunch of helpers, then we start having critical elements of the leadership team and moving from a founding team to the first version of the leadership team. Uh, and then finally, we have the revenue seats at the table and, and that first version of leadership team. So the VP marketing or the, or the marketing director, Adam marketing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, so the marketing leader, the sales leader, the CS leader, the product leader, uh, all in, in the same table. But then it happens what you just said. If the CEO is not able to bring them together and make a partnership among them, and even worse, if the CEO is in one of those seats that it happens a lot at, at that stage still because he was not able yet to delegate um, the function, uh, there is no revenue team and no one is, is creating the engine, uh, as you said, which is critical to, to create uh, the repeatability, the profitability and the scalability of, um, of the engine. And that's why uh, CEOs are more and more aware that they need to have a revenue person because it's also a very intense full-time uh, job that sometimes even for the CEO, it's very complex to, to try to play it um, himself. So what, how are you able to create this partnership? How did you structure the team? What were some of your tips or lessons to the audience that are thinking about the same kind of movements in their careers? Yeah. Well, first of all, like Blake is the best CEO in the world. And so his ability to understand and agree with the fact that we need to align this whole funnel, it doesn't happen without that, right? And when you're doing something new, particularly at that stage of the company, that, that took a lot of uh, you know courage and fortitude for him as, as the CEO. And it's one of the reasons why he's the best is because he can make those bets and he's right. So that's the, that's the first thing. The other thing is I totally cheated. I went and brought our, our VP of sales from my last <laughs> company. And so we already were aligned on what that revenue funnel was going to look like. Um, and then, so, you know, it, it's he and I, and we're, we're building this funnel together. His name's Woody Clemenson. And then who we ended up hiring to run, you know, the marketing part of the funnel, he came because of the structure. It's actually a recruiting advantage, Mike, because these great marketers, they're tired of being thrown under the bus by sales all the time. Oh, you know, marketing doesn't get us the right leads or they're not focused on the right things and all the garbage that comes with that. And so he was attracted to the structure. And then you get really talented. It's the same thing in revenue operations. They are attracted to the structure because now they don't just have sales ops or marketing ops that lives in a silo, they're responsible mm -hmm. for the, the systems and the operations and the data around the whole thing. So you can recruit exceptional talent. And so I, I just think getting people bought into that vision is actually a recruiting advantage. It certainly has been for us. And, and it, you know, it starts, it starts at the top down, but that's been our idea since, since we showed up here and it's, uh, it's, it's done all that we hoped it would and much more. That, that is cool. So what you were saying is that you were kind of the first one on that structure uh, as being part of leadership team with the founders uh, and yeah. with Blake, the CEO. 
and you were playing the marketing role and at a certain point he told you uh look we need we need you to kind of play the revenue uh role and you need to build your team so you need to bring in someone from sales from cs from support or lead the ones who are already in the business so how did it work did you, did you recruit the all the whole team or 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 it was a hybrid Yeah. So, you know, most of it, because it was, it was very, very new. So there were a few people, for example, in like customer success. And, and so we got, to, I got to work with them as we unified the funnel, but then I, I got to go and build that leadership team and make sure that people were excited about the structure and what we were building, you know, from a revenue perspective. And so it was a little bit of both, right? Like we had a few, a few reps in sales. We had a few reps in customer support. We had a, a small um, success team. And so as we unified that funnel, right, I go from marketing to, to owning that whole thing. Um, we had some really good talent, but then I got to go out and, and build that team over the, the last couple of years. Got it. So when when we define and kind of going a little bit deeper into the into the revenue machine, uh, as you see, that it's kind of a passion of me because I I really agree with you. I've seen so many times the um, the leadership team together kind of blaming who is the responsible for not getting the target is is the VP yeah. marketing is the VP sales it was the VP CS no it's it's the guy of product because we don't have the right product. So, it, so it's kind of a discussion. And guys, we will not get there if we are not able to align and understand this is our problem. It's not the problem of marketing, sales, CS, or product. It's our problem. It's a revenue machine problem. So how can we align and work together to solve that problem? That's why it, it helps to have a leader that we report into uh, that assures that everyone is on the same page uh, because his incentives uh, are aligned to really create the, the revenue machine uh, work. And something that we like to put on the OKRs when we define them is really how can we measure that we are getting closer to create that engine, right? And so what do you think are the critical metrics to measure? Because I, I have this question and, uh, again and again and again. Um, yeah. What do you think are, are those metrics that need to track uh, every single week at least? Yeah, and it's a really good question. What I would say has been very successful for us is to always measure each department as low in the funnel you have to make them care about something lower in the funnel than they are comfortable with. So for marketing, for example, we measure marketing off of qualified opportunities. So it's not a lead. It's not a demo scheduled. It's a qualified opportunity. And the, the team that actually qualifies it is sales. So implicitly, it's a little bit out of your hands and that's a little bit uncomfortable, but it makes you so much better. It makes you partner tighter. And we do the same thing with sales, right? When you close one a deal, that's not what we're measuring. Sure, we keep track of it. But what we're measuring is the success of them once they've onboarded. And that's how we build comp plans and philosophies. And so the idea is to continually measure people after the handoff has been made and keep track of those um, and, and hold those up as kind of your gold standard. Got it. And something that I see also a lot of, of friction, again, picking up your brain on that and your experience on that is of course the typical, uh, you know, usually companies that get to this stage um, and assume the same happen, it have a very strong 
inbound. And at a certain point, they believe in order to go to the next stage, they need to create an outbound machine yeah. as part of that revenue machine. And then it comes the channel or the or the partnerships and the referral loops. Um, so and and then uh, there is the discussion. No, it's we should double down on inbound, or it's not working. The outbound, the SDR teams that we are building, this is not working at all. We are not able to find the right profile, the right the right process data, as you were saying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what is your experience with this mess on creating this revenue machine? That's it's made about a lot of things and with a lot of pressure and uh, investors asking questions and also the pressure, of course, of, of the numbers that don't lie. Right? Yeah. No, you, you summed it up nicely. And for us, our experience has been we came in and set up a very strong inbound motion. I think the trick is to start working on outbound well before you need it. So before you feel like inbound is getting you diminishing returns, go build your outbound model. It should be a completely separate model, by the way. Don't assume the same conversion rates. Don't assume you know, every, every different indicator that you have in your model is going to be different. It will be. Like inbound is amazing. If you could just do inbound, you should just do inbound. But as you want to go up market and as you want to take on bigger and bigger challenges, I, I do believe you have to diversify that. So start working on outbound while inbound is crushing it. Keep doubling down on it, keep exploiting it, but go explore outbound before it's a necessity, before there's pressure. And the same thing with channel. You should do the exact same thing with channel. That's what we've done. And so channel is outperforming every expectation we had for it because we started on it before we needed it. And the same thing with outbound. That gives you a little bit of buffer you know, between that pressure and that performance and you can be ahead of the game as opposed to, to being behind it. Got it. And I also love it, the, the point that you made, again, coming back to the team and giving two steps back, um, of being able to bring someone that you have worked with. So sometimes we forget in, in the kind of biz that we are leading, time and speed is really, really important. And the time of building a team uh, is also important, right? So if we need to start a team from scratch and being able to double revenue in, in 12 months, uh, it's a very hard exercise. So I see a very, comp a very important competitive advantage if you are able to at least yeah. bring, um, and, and we are seeing that with serial entrepreneurs that are able to kind of bring the same core so maybe in other positions it can be different people but the core is kind of the same so they can move so 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 quickly and um, so it was the vp cells it was the only one that you have worked with or did you did you have even more advantages <laughs> yeah no i i agree with you and <laughs> and i think that really what you're going to see is people start traveling in tribes right and it's like we have this machine this works you have a new idea a new product a new round of funding plug in this machine i think you you know recently saw that with frank slootman and and snowflake right he takes the same team from uh from from data domain really and kind of plugs it back in and, and has exceptional results it just allows you to reduce the the ramp period because you already understand the play you already understand what you're going to go out and do so i had i i brought a lot of people with me um as far as the the department heads 
Most of them are net new. The VP of sales is the only one who is not net new, but, but the revenue team is absolutely littered with people who, who I've worked with in the past and have great respect for, you know, John Stoddard, Ben Yule, Mariah Rulia. Like there's just, there's a lot of them. And, uh, and they're just absolutely amazing and have helped us reduce the ramp period because when you have to go, you know, 5X, 10X your revenue number, you don't have time to, uh, to waste. So that, it's a helpful accelerant. Absolutely. And, and, and if we think about the analogies of sports that I, I always love, it's kind of uh, a new soccer coach will always bring uh, the core of his or her team to, to train a new team because usually those kind of people, for instance, if, they're, if they lose two or three games in a row, they are fired. So it's, it's kind of brutal. So they don't have the time again to build a team, to test uh, the philosophy, the, the tactics, uh, the techniques that they will use. They need to start playing now, tomorrow, right? Yeah, and revenue is the exact same way. Like, go miss your number for three months and, you know, you're, you're gone, Good right? So it's, it's, the exact, it's the exact same motion. Exactly. So let's, let's move into uh, culture of execution. And I think that's, again, one of the main issues um, of not being able to play as a team is not to have rituals of revenue. So we have rituals of marketing, sales, CS, all separated. So, but we are not able to think about revenue together. So we don't have the weeklies, the monthlies, the quarterlies, the, the motions um, in place. So what, what are some of the rituals that have, have been working on your favor? Yeah, a couple things that I really like. Um, I'm a big fan of scorecards. And so I have my my customized scorecard built out for my team that they send me every Friday night when the week is over. And so that that helps us really keep a, a tight grip on what we, we call it finish lining. You're calling it executing. I'm saying, what did we finish line? So that scorecard, one of the elements in there is called a focus of the week. And at the beginning of the week, I sit down with the team and I say, what is the one thing that no matter what else we are going to get done this week? And we do that on Monday. They report on it in their scorecard on Friday. That helps us keep a good cadence and also build that cultural muscle of we are about finishing things. I don't want a bunch of holes that are half dug throughout the organization. I want fewer things that are finished. The other thing is, is just doing your forecasting meetings, right? So we forecast on Monday. That's another thing that gets reported on in the weekend scorecard and building those things throughout your culture is very, very helpful. If anything starts to slip, you can raise your hand and say, I need help over here. We dive in, we, we figure it out, we fix it. Um, but, but those are a few things that we do to make sure that we're finish lining or as you call it, executing constantly. The other thing is we do rolling 30, 60, 90s, okay? So we don't, we don't specifically call them OKRs, but they are the, the same framework where we have mm -hmm. objectives and then we have things that need to happen for that objective to, to become true. And so right. that's, that's another thing that we do as a team um, that, that helps us make sure we're always, we're always ahead of the game, but we're also always focusing and executing in the moment. Got it. So how did you call that framework? Could you repeat again? The, the rolling 30, 60, 90? Got it. So the, the idea there is what you plan for your 30 days, 
mm-hmm. is really high fidelity, right? Like it's a pretty immediate future. You know what you're doing, how to get it done. Mm-hmm. You need to plan out 90 days, but it's less, it's, it's not as high fidelity. Like there are things that will come up that will change that. So you always plan the quarter, but then on a 30-day basis, you are reevaluating and making sure that that the 30-day period is really, really locked in and that your 90-day feels good, feels accurate, but knowing that 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 will have some changes. Got it. So that's the kind of the monthly, um, in in my terminology, let's say. Uh, Got it. Perfect. And before we go to our favorite uh, question and to close the show, I would like still to give you an extra point. So what would you like to add to something that we didn't discuss that is really, really important for folks that are listening to us and are scaling up and let's say, especially after Series A or B2C, uh, I know that now you are on your way to 100 million uh, after 10 million. Uh, so, but what would you add that we didn't discuss and that you think it's really, really important? Um, speaking specifically about revenue functions, your alignment with product will make or break your, and with finance too, it's just, they, it will make or break your success. And so you have to be just as tightly integrated with product and their roadmap and their priorities and their challenges as you are with your own. If you get in a silo and, you know, finance is, is doing FY planning, you know, without your input, you're, you're in trouble, right? You're in, you're in, your company is in trouble. And so align with other functions and, and I can't express how important that is for companies who really want to succeed. You have valuable data that they need to make good decisions. They need to hear and, and be a part of input on, on what you're doing well and what you're doing poorly. And I, I just think that most companies uh, underestimate how important that alignment is. I mean, I mean, you can even throw HR in there. Like you need, you need to be aligned with the functions of your leadership team. And that results or, or that, that comes from really good communication. The best leaders are the best communicators. And make sure that you are doing that cross-functionally as well as you are doing that within your own department. Love it. And I think that's one of the main issues sometimes with the OKR rhythms. It's really to be able to cross-functionally align the team and, and the dependencies between each function, right? Yeah. And it's really easy to say and really hard to do, right? But if you focus on it, uh, you can you can certainly make improvements. Absolutely. And Something that you talked a lot about that I that Jason Lemkin also likes to to write a lot about is is the capacity of world class VPs to be able to recruit and hire amazing people and yeah. I'm sure that for the leaders that you are you are also looking to the same kind of quality. So what are the people that you will bring with you? Who are the people that you will bring with you? <laughs> the people who, who are at Divi, this is my, this is kind of my bar, Mike, is if I hire you, I want to be able to say that you are so good. I would also work for you. Like, like I could see myself being in an inverted role and learning from you and working mm-hmm. for you. Great. And I believe that that is true. And so, I mean, they don't, they're not going to listen to this because they get to hear me talk like all day, every day, but like Jason Hainsworth, phenomenal. I would work for him. I would work with him. I would take him with me to any opportunity. Um, so Woody Clemenson, uh, you know, Rick Galen, Ryan Meeker, 
Mariah Rulia, Amber Johnson, Melissa Lane, like these people are phenomenal. And, uh, and I would take them all with me again. And the second that I don't believe that's true, I probably need to have a conversation with whoever that person is and, uh, and help them find their next opportunity. But gosh, our, our leadership team is just stacked and that's why we're doing special things. I love it. There's something that I love to say as well to, to my teams, which is um, the amazing leadership, leadership teams are the ones that everyone in the team could be the CEO. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's what you just said, right? All have that capacity. We know that only one can lead the team. If not, it's very complicated to move forward, especially when we are we don't agree. Uh, but we all would have the potential to to be on on that role. So, final question. So, if you would have the opportunity to meet Sterling at the beginning of your journey with DV, what advice would you offer to your younger self? It's a really hard question. Um, you know, the first thing I would say, honestly, is make sure you find, um, you know, I'm married. I, I got married two years ago. I would say make sure to Congrats. find that person because what, what she has done for me and what she's allowed me to do professionally, it's unparalleled, right? Like I, I just am, am freer in a way that is hard to describe because my personal life is is so awesome. Um, other than that, the advice that I would give myself is to value, don't underestimate how important people's feelings are. And I, I've always been kind of a structure and a process and a results sort of guy. And a lot of times that meant that I wasn't as, as careful or as conscientious of how people were feeling and their emotional bank account. And I've had to learn that through some really painful lessons, like people who I care about deeply coming to me and saying, hey, Sterling, you're, you're kind of a jerk. And I need, to, I need to tell you some things and you need to be aware of some things. And those were some really painful lessons that I've had to learn and I'm, and I'm still improving on, not, not done yet. But I would say to Sterling, find your life partner and and in a professional setting, make sure that you care about people's emotional bank account a lot. Love it. Sterling, thanks so much for being so candid with us today and for making the time. Yeah, for sure, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. And to the audience, we keep here bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier on your way from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling.